Good morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would help us. We ask that you would help me as the preacher to say only what is true and edifying for your people. Please help me to be clear uh, that my words, that my delivery might not be a hindrance or a distraction or get in the way, but instead would aid the people in seeing the glory of your gospel. We pray for all who are listening. We pray that you would give them ears to hear, eyes to see, that this would not just be a transference of information, but that your word would shape and change us, that we might glorify you with our lives. Lord, we also pray for those in our midst who do not know you. Pray that today would be the day of salvation, which you would cause them to be born again unto eternal life. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you are relatively new to First Baptist Church, uh, you should know that what we are about to do this morning... Uh, and for the next several weeks to come, uh, is not our typical approach to studying the Bible. Uh, Typically, what we'll do is uh, we'll take a book of the Bible, and we'll just kind of work through it. And so, for example, last fall, uh, we started a study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And over the past six months or so, uh, we've covered the first four chapters, and each Sunday we just pick up wherever we left off the week before, uh, whatever the next passage is. Uh, We'll take that passage, and uh, we'll try to understand what it means, what God is saying through that text, and then seek to apply it to our lives. And while we do draw from other books of the Bible, right, using Scripture to understand and interpret Scripture— Our primary focus each week is just seeking to understand uh, what that particular passage that we're covering in Luke, like what that passage means. Uh, And we might call that uh, expository preaching or expositional preaching. And that's what we typically will do here. Uh, What we're going to do over the next eight weeks or so is a little bit different. Uh, We might call it topical preaching. And so each Sunday, instead of focusing on one passage and explaining what that passage means, we're instead going to focus on one topic and see what the whole of the scriptures has to say about that one topic. Now, my preference between the two is definitely expositional preaching. Uh, I think it's through a steady diet of expositional preaching that God's people grow most in his word. Uh, If you're only ever hearing topical sermons, I think there's uh, some major potential pitfalls to that. Uh, But all that's not to say that there is no place in preaching for topical sermons that are rooted in the scriptures. And by rooted in the scriptures, I mean these sermons are not going to be like, what does pastor think about such and such a topic? Uh, But they're going to be, Lord willing, what does the Bible say about such and such a topic? And so with everything that I'm going to say uh, today and in the weeks to come uh, in these topical sermons, uh, I'm going to try to back everything up with Scripture. And so I'm going to be reading like a whole bunch of verses. Uh, Hopefully they're going to magically appear on that screen right there. Uh, I want to encourage you 
to write down the references, right? especially those verses with which you're a little bit less familiar, uh, so that you might look into them in your own time, right? examine the scriptures for yourself to see if what I'm saying is actually true. So what are the topics that we're going to be covering? Well, I want our church to learn about the church. Now, that might not sound as uh, exciting or intriguing as other potential topics, uh, but this is one of those topics that we absolutely have to get right. Like, we must understand this correctly if we are going to function as a healthy, biblical, New Testament church. Uh, And so in this series, this topical series, we'll cover uh, the nature of the church, uh, church leadership, church membership, church discipline, church ordinances, all of that. Uh, And along the way, right, applying these sermons, we're going to carefully think about how our current practices as a church line up with what God's Word says. And where we're mostly following God's design for his church, right, as he's laid it out in his word, well, praise God, right, let's continue to grow in those things for his glory, uh, perhaps with a renewed sense of purpose, right, seeing that what we do comes not from uh, pragmatism or from our culture, but comes primarily from God's word itself. And where we as a church are not doing what God's word says, Well, let's be willing to submit our practice or our tradition or our bylaws or whatever else in order to align with the ultimate authority that we have, which is God's word. And so just to make my intentions uh, very clear up front, uh, I do think that there are parts of our bylaws and our practices that probably should be changed if we are going to function as a healthy biblical New Testament church. Uh, But before we get to any of that, we need to first see from God's word what his design for the church is. And that's what I'm hoping to accomplish through this series. Uh, And so my hope is that these sermons on the church will be both uh, deeply doctrinal uh, and at the same time just practically worshipful, right, as we seek to apply God's wonderful design for the church uh, to the life of our own congregation. And so we're going to start today by just asking the simple question, what is the church? Socrates once said, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. And you all know I've never read a page of Socrates in my life. I just saw that quote and I liked it. Uh, But the, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms, not the Book of Proverbs would have a slightly different uh, take on the beginning of wisdom, but you get my point. Uh, When we don't know what terms mean, uh, when we use words for which we don't have clear definitions and clear understandings of the definitions, well, that can be problematic. Uh, The story is told of a a congressman. Uh, He makes a, a speech to a crowd, and afterwards, uh, this elderly woman runs up to him, and she says, oh, congressman, uh, your, your speech, it was, it was superfluous. It was so superfluous. Now, he didn't know if she was mocking him or she just didn't know what the definition of that word was. And so he tries to save the conversation. Oh, well, I'm thinking of having it published posthumously. And she responds with, 
Oh, that's wonderful. The sooner, the better. (laughs) When we don't know what words mean, when we don't have a clear understanding of definitions, well, you can see how that is problematic. So what I want to do today is just lay the foundation for the rest of the series. I want to define biblically what a church is. Because a church, well, that's just one of those words that you ask 10 different people, you're going to get 11 different definitions. For some people, church just refers to the physical structure, right? The building, like the one that we are sitting in this morning. For others, church, well, that's just another nonprofit organization that seeks to do good things for the community and It's really not all that different from a food bank or a community center. For some people, church is like a social club. You can meet other nice people. It's a nice little optional add-on to the Christian life. And so it's, it's good for some Christians. It works for some Christians, but it's not a necessary component of the Christian life. And similarly for others, church... It's just mainly about your individual relationship with Jesus, uh, whether it involves other people or not. And so church can be just you reading your Bible or you listening to a sermon online in your living room. But I would say all those definitions, uh, to varying degrees, miss the mark. So then biblically speaking, what is the church? And I think there's several different approaches to answering that question. Uh, We could talk about what the church does, right? The the marks of the church, uh, the preaching of God's word and uh, the ordinances. And we're going to talk about those things in the weeks to come. Uh, We could talk about examples of churches that we see in the New Testament. Like we've been studying the early church in Jerusalem, right? In our Sunday night study of the book of Acts. But for today, what I want to do is I want to just kind of establish the 10,000-foot, like, overview. The the big-picture, theological view, what is the church? And we're going to do that by kind of working through four points. And we're going to start with a small definition. And then with each point, we're going to, Lord willing, expand that definition a little bit each time. And so first, let's start with just this simple definition. Uh, The church is God's people. Point number one, the church is God's people. And as simple as that definition is, I think it's an important clarification because oftentimes, right, in the English language, we will use the word church to describe a building or a location. Oh, I'll meet you in front of the church. Are you going to be at the church? Now, that's not wrong, because language, right, at the end of the day, it's just kind of mutually understood definitions. And so I know what you're saying, and you know what I'm saying, and and so that's cool. But the word church, as we see it in our Bibles, in the Greek, uh, it's the word ekklesia, and that refers to a gathering or an assembly of people. It never refers to a location, never refers to a building, never refers to a structure. It always refers to a people that are gathered together uh, who are called out into some assembly. And here's the thing, like biblically, 
it's not even a strictly religious term. You may be familiar with the story from Acts chapter 19. The Apostle Paul, he's in Ephesus. Uh, there's a riot going on among the craftsmen because they're, they're losing money because people are worshiping Jesus instead of uh, buying their idols. And so this big mob gathers together, and this is what Luke writes. Uh, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly, that's ecclesia, was in confusion. And so you can clearly see that an ecclesia doesn't have to be a Christian gathering. As a matter of fact, that ecclesia was a gathering of those who hated Christians. And that's because ecclesia just means assembly or gathering. Now, apart from Acts 19, the, the word appears there three times, apart from Acts 19, any other time that we see the word in the New Testament, it's referring to a gathering specifically of God's people. But that's my point. The church refers to a people. I think that's a particularly important distinction to make uh, for two reasons. One, uh, again, we often use the term church to refer to a building, but we know that buildings come and buildings go. Buildings can be destroyed. Buildings can be raised. Uh, Buildings can be seized. Uh, Like, we ought to be very thankful to God for this wonderful building that he has given us in which we can gather. But if for whatever reason this building were to be taken from us tomorrow, we would not cease to be the church because, again, the church is God's people. And it's also a helpful reminder to us that uh, even in those places in the world where uh, a building like this would be illegal— Uh, where Christians can't meet in specially recognized uh, and designated buildings, but instead they meet in secret, they meet in hiding. God's people are gathered. Well, there too is the church, because again, the church is God's people. Uh, Second, I think it's an important clarification because we live in a really individualistic, uh, autonomy-loving society And that kind of mindset from the world has definitely crept into Christianity where well-meaning believers think that, well, I can just live out my faith on my own. The church is just about me and Jesus. But again, that's not what a church is. The church is a people. It's an assembly. It's a gathering. Let me say one other thing at this point that might be a helpful clarification for some of you. Uh, It's to distinguish between what we would call the universal church and the local church. Uh, So the universal church refers to all of God's people, right, from throughout redemptive history, uh, all over the world. Uh, We said it this morning, I believe in the holy universal, or, or Catholic with a small c, church, Well, local churches are just like individual gatherings from that universal church. And so this church, the First Baptist Church in the city of New York, it's just one local expression of the universal church. It's a local gathering of what is God's people. But either way, whether we're talking about the universal church or we're talking about a local church, the church is, point number one, God's people. What is the purpose when God's people gather? Uh, Look again at Acts 19.32. So that crowd right there, 
I think this is one of the funnier lines in the New Testament. Luke points out that some of them didn't even know why they were there. Like, why they came together. Well, the church ought not to be that way. God's people gathers for a purpose. And really, it's the same purpose for which he created all people, which is to worship him. John 4, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so point number one, the church is God's people, a people who worship him in spirit and in truth. There's one major problem with our definition so far. The church is God's people. And that's that in and of ourselves, nobody is qualified to be part of such a people. A part of a people who worship him. Why do I say that? Well, look at how the Bible describes how God ought to be worshipped. Psalm 29.2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And so right worship of God is giving him the glory that's due his name and worshiping him in the splendor of his holiness. But the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible is very clear that none are holy. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so because of our sin, because of the ways in which we have broken a holy God's perfect laws, we cannot worship God as he ought to be worshipped. Like for his glory, in the splendor of his holiness. Isaiah 59 highlights that truth for us. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions, uh, they separate us from God so that we cannot be God's people who worship him rightly. And it's not like God says, well, you're trying. And so you're going to get an A for, for effort. Now look at the emphatic language that God uses when it comes to worship brought by one who is steeped in unrighteousness, unholiness, and injustice of basically all natural people. Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. And so friends, we cannot worship God because of our sin. But it's not just that our sin disqualifies us from worshiping God, although our sin does disqualify us from worshiping God. It's also that our sin nature, that we're born with, that we inherit from our forefather Adam, it runs so deep within us, it infects our entire person so that we don't even want to worship God. It's not just that we can't. It's that we don't even want to. Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. You say, well, what about the unbeliever who comes to a church service? Well, there may be a million reasons why an unbeliever would come to a service. 
Maybe a friend invited them. Maybe they're looking for the answers to some of life's biggest questions. Maybe they've felt the emptiness and disappointment of the world. Maybe their conscience is bothering them. But whatever it is that brings them there, it's not a true desire to worship God in the splendor of his holiness. Because that's just folly to the natural man. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. But, and what I'm about to say is the most foundational truth, like not just for the church and defining what the church is, but also it's the key to understanding like life and death, our existence, our eternity, all of those things. And that's that God has chosen a people, the church, and he has sent his son to purchase and redeem that people. Our sin was what separated us from God, what made us strangers to his worship. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, to take on human flesh, uh, to become a man like one of us. And as a human being, he lived the perfect life that we never could. And uh, we've been seeing that even from the Gospel of Luke. But then he went to the cross where he himself took upon the sins of God's people, the church. And he died the death that we deserve, that we might be forgiven of our sins, right? That we might be saved. And the Bible repeatedly uses the language of payment or a ransom or redemption. And so the picture here is that uh, we sinners, uh, we owe this infinite debt. We owe this infinite debt to God because of our sin. It's a debt that if we were to pay it ourselves, we would spend an eternity in hell. But Jesus took that debt upon himself. And so we say that he paid for our sins. He made the payment, the, the, the ransom. He's redeemed us from our slavery to sin. Like the hymn says, Jesus paid it all. Uh, look at Acts 20, verse 28. Uh, listen to how Paul describes the church. This is the uh, New American Standard translation. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so point number two, we can kind of expand our definition here a little bit. The church is God's people purchased by Christ. The church is God's people purchased by Christ. And it's not just that the sin is removed, right? That sin that separated us from God is now removed so we can draw near to him. It's also that when we're purchased, when we're saved— God gives us new natures that now desire to worship him, to draw near to him, to come to him in spirit and in truth. Remember how we said earlier that to natural man, like those spiritual things like worship are completely folly? But to those who are redeemed, right, God's people, what was once folly to us, what once we had absolutely wanted nothing to do with all of that, well, now that has become the great desire of our hearts to worship and glorify God. 
The church is God's people right, who worship him, but they can only be God's people because of what Christ has done in, in purchasing them. And so the church is God's people purchased by Christ. And that connection between God's people and what Christ had to do to create God's people, right, purchasing them, that connection is made very clear for us in Titus chapter 2. Awaiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, right? He purchased us through his death to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And what would we call that? We would call that the church. Point number two, the church is God's people purchased by Christ. That's a very important distinction for us to make because there is one very crucial implication of that. And that's that not everybody here in this room today is the church. Sometimes we think that uh, anybody who goes to church is then part of the church. But that's not true because plenty of people go to church Plenty of people will come to such a gathering of the church who have not placed their trust in Christ and thus are not part of the people whom he has redeemed. And so you see why definitions matter. Some of you are not part of the church. And so everything that I said earlier about your sin separating you from God, making any attempts uh, that you worship God, Uh, Those are just an abomination to him because of your sin. All of that is still true of you. And so the bad news is that as a result, the wrath of God is still hanging over you. And if you continue down this path, a friend, you are headed to an eternity in hell where you will pay for your own sins, where you'll be judged and punished for all the ways in which you've dishonored and rebelled against your creator. But the good news of the gospel is that the church is God's people purchased by Christ. That Jesus came to die for sinners like you. And if you would believe that he died, if you would believe that he rose again for your sins, if you would place your trust for eternity in him alone— If you would repent of your sins and turn to Christ, well, you can have your sins paid for. You can be made into a new creation. You can be part of God's people. Point number two, the church is God's people purchased by Christ. Point number three, let's just continue to expand our definition here. Uh, The church is God's precious people purchased by Christ. Once upon a time, I used to teach Economics 101. Uh, One of the first things you learn in economics is that a thing is worth what someone is willing to pay for it. And so let's use that definition we immediately begin to see how valuable, like how precious the church is to God. 
Because Jesus willingly laid down his own life to purchase the church, to redeem the church, to ransom the church. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed or purchased from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What was the payment, uh, the purchase price, if you will, for the church? Not silver or gold, as valuable as we might perceive those things to be. Well, those things are perishable. No, it is something of infinitely more value and worth and glory. The precious blood of Christ. I mean, you think about the immense unfathomable cost of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, very God of very God, leaving the glories of heaven, taking on the the frailty of humanity and becoming a man like us. For your sake, he became poor. And then humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a love, what a cost also he might purchase God's people. And when we see that, right, when we truly understand that, we begin to understand uh, just the magnitude and the gravity and the awesomeness of God's love for his people, for the church. Jesus said it himself, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Uh, there is no greater love that God could have displayed Uh, There is no greater cost than the perfect Son of God laying down his life for the church. The church is immensely precious to God. The object of his holy love, which he so clearly demonstrated and displayed undeniably through the cross. So point number three, the church is God's precious people purchased by Christ. Let's expand our definition a little more now, looking not only at what Jesus has done in the past in purchasing his precious people, but looking also to the present uh, and even to the future at what Jesus is doing now and is continuing to do until he returns in preserving his precious people to the very end. To point number four, the church is God's precious people purchased and preserved by Christ. Well, since God's people is comprised of individual sinners saved by grace, let's just kind of start by thinking about this on the individual level. The Bible is very clear on the teaching of the perseverance of the saints. That once you are truly saved by God, cannot lose your salvation. Now, if salvation was just a matter of us making a decision for Jesus, well, stands to reason that you can change your mind at any time. But if salvation is from beginning to end a work of God, Jesus purchasing us through his work on the cross, God sovereignly changing us and making us into a new creation through the new birth, well, God is not a son of man that he should change his mind. And so we can say with Paul, Philippians 
that I'm sure of this, like I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And you can see how that ties so closely with our second point, that Jesus died to purchase God's church because, well, his death was not in vain. He's not going to lose any of those for whom he died, that that he purchased with his own precious blood. No, he's going to preserve and keep them to the very end. That's his promise in John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Like just logically, right? Nobody is going to end up in hell if Jesus has paid for their sins. That would mean he failed miserably as a savior, which of course is impossible. So now let's take that truth from an individual level, like what is true of the individual believer, that Jesus will not lose any of the individual sinners for whom he has died. And now let's think about that on the corporate level, uh, at the level of the people, uh, at the level of the church. Well, if the church is a people that God has purchased— And if he has promised to keep each of those individual people to the very end through his preserving grace, well, then it stands to reason that the church will endure forever. And so with that in mind, I want you to consider this famous verse from Matthew 16 that that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now we can debate for hours about the rock. Theologians have debated for centuries about what that verse means in in that regard. Uh, But I think one thing that every single person here can agree on, like what this verse is saying, is that Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell are never going to be able to tear down what Jesus is building. That is, the church is not only a purchased people, but it's also a preserved people. The Son of God himself has guaranteed to preserve his church to the very end. Now, will the forces of evil relentlessly attack the church? Yes. Will God, in his providence, allow his church to go through times of difficulty? Uh, various trials and afflictions, both seasons of revival and seasons of decreased influence. Yes, but even through all of those ups and downs, has God guaranteed that he will always keep for himself a faithful remnant so that the church will never be overtaken by the gates of hell? Yes, absolutely. That is an amazing thing if you think about it. The church, God's purchased and preserved people, will never disappear. Uh, The church, God's purchased and preserved people, are going to stand to the very end. And so we see, thinking back to our original definitions, the church is unlike any organization or society or institution in that its perpetuation is guaranteed by God himself. Let's just compare that to some of the greatest and most lasting human institutions. And I'm referring to empires. 
over the course of human history, every human kingdom has risen and fallen. Even the mightiest empires, right? The the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, the Mongol Empire, the Ottoman Empire. The sun never sets on the British Empire until it did. For thousands of years, every other kingdom has risen and has fallen. But the kingdom of God, Daniel chapter 2, it shall stand forever. And it's not just kingdoms, it's ideologies, it's movements, it's philosophies. They're, they're here today, and they're gone tomorrow. So many so-called prophets of their day have declared that God is dead and that the church is irrelevant. But here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus died, and the church, the people of God, the precious people of God, continues to be preserved by his grace. Point number four, the church is God's precious people purchased and preserved by Christ. So that's like our 10,000 foot overview. That's the big picture definition of the church that I wanted to communicate. The church is God's precious people purchased and preserved by Christ. Now is that an exhaustive or complete definition? No, it's not, but I think it gets at the essence of the New Testament idea of the church. And hopefully for us, it will serve as a a helpful starting point for the rest of this series as we kind of delve deeper into more specific topics about the church. So let me leave you now with uh, two applications. So uh, this whole sermon, we've been building up this one idea. The church is God's precious people, purchased and preserved by Christ. But so what? Like, how does that understanding of the church then impact how we ought to live out our day-to-day lives as Christians? Well, application point number one is to love the church. One of the analogies, uh, word, uh, the Bible has many analogies, many word pictures uh, when it comes to the church. And so the church is described as a, a body or a family, a, a nation, a priesthood. But I think one of the most like intimate ones that, that really strikes us is that of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is imagery we see all over the New Testament, the church as the bride of Christ. Now suppose you were to come up to me, and you were to say, Harry, listen, I love you. I love everything about you, and I want to be your friend. But there's just one thing. I absolutely hate your wife. Well, first, I, I, I don't know, I would just be utterly confused because she is a lot more likable and friendly than I am. Are you sure you got that right? Like, you hate me and you love her? But once I got over that confusion, well, that's simply not going to work. 
You cannot be my friend and at the same time be my wife's enemy. You cannot love me truly as long as you hate my wife. And that's because of the union that I have with her. Well, if that's true of me and my wife in our imperfect union, well, how much more true is that of Christ and his church in their perfect union? You simply cannot say, I love Jesus, I just don't like his church. I need Jesus, but I can definitely do without his church. That's because Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, has united himself to his people in such a way that loving him and loving his people are virtually synonymous. You think about how closely Jesus identifies himself with his church. So the church is referred to as his body, like an inseparable part of him. Or when Jesus confronts Saul of Tarsus, the notorious persecutor of the church, what does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Conversely, to love the church is to love Jesus. First John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Well, who's that referring to? That brother whom he has seen. It's referring, at the very least, to the church. John is crystal clear. If you don't love the church, you cannot credibly claim that you love God. Because the church is God's precious people, purchased and preserved by him. Right? It's Christ's bride. And you can't credibly say that you love Christ, but you hate his bride. Here's another way to see that. Think back to points number two and three. Christ purchased the church, and that shows how precious the church is to Christ. Because it was purchased with his precious blood. Well, when we realize the cost that the Son of God gave his life, shed his blood in order to create for himself a people for his own possession, right? when we see how precious in God's eyes the church is, well, should, not, should that not then make the church that much more precious in our eyes? Should we not, as God's people, simply seek to love what God loves? And what in his creation has he more clearly demonstrated that he loves than the church? And so there's a, a million possible complaints that each and every one of us could have about the church in general or uh, any specific local congregation. I don't like the style of music. It's too hot and uncomfortable during our gatherings. Church events, they just keep getting in the way of other things. The people of God can be just very difficult and annoying. Maybe all of those things are true. But 
The church is God's precious people purchased and preserved by Christ. Right? Having that kind of big picture, 10,000 foot overview of the glory of the church, well, that then calls us to overlook the imperfections, the idiosyncrasies, the inconveniences of the church, and to love the church if for no other reason than because God loves his church. Application point number one, love the church. Application point number two, closely related to number one, is to prioritize the church. I hope that if, like nothing else this morning, you have seen how important and glorious the church is. It was so important, such a priority, if you will, for Jesus, that he left the glories of heaven. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. Well, should it not then similarly be a priority in the life of every believer who is part of that church? I understand that there is a million things vying for your time, your effort, your energy, your priorities. Uh, you have a job, and uh, you have kids, and you have a family, and you have an apartment, and you have schoolwork, and, and all of that. And I am not minimizing any of those things. You ought to do all of those things for the glory of God, stewarding every good gift that he has given to you. But remember point number four. Jesus preserves his church. Jesus himself has guaranteed that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. And so his church is indestructible, invincible, imperishable, eternal. And so when all of those other like temporary, fleeting, ephemeral things, when all of things, those things pass away, those things to which we are so drawn and those things that we tend to so prioritize— well, the church is still going to be there. Having that just big picture, uh, eternal perspective, well then, does that not impact how we make just the simple decisions of our day-to-day -day lives? When we sit down to plan out our schedule for the next week, what do we prioritize? Around what do we structure our schedules? Is it Sunday morning? What is it that tends to crowd out the things that we ought to be doing just in terms of the busyness of our weeks? How important are the people of God as opposed to all of the other things that are vying for your time? Those are just simple questions that we need to ask ourselves if it is true that the church is God's precious people that he has not only purchased, but also will preserve into eternity. Let's pray. Father, I realize that my fallible words are, are just so insufficient in properly portraying the glory of your church. And so we just pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work of opening 
our eyes to your glory through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.